warning, 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 turn back now. Because as much as I wanted to avoid it, as much as I didn't want to uh, force my interest in the matter onto the toy-buying public who just need a little bit of escapism, this is a political episode. And the viewpoints I'm going to express here, I feel are fairly universal, pretty non-controversial, and likely to be well-received by most human beings. That being said, you guys didn't sign up to hear me espouse uh, my political theories, and I understand and appreciate if you don't want to listen. I think that's totally fair. You can tune out now. Um, I don't always like, you know, to get political views from my sources of entertainment. There are some times when, you know, I just want the mind-numbing pressing of a button to give me a food pellet. And, uh, you know, I also, I really don't like political views from unintelligent people. And I think it's a fair criticism to say uh, I may not be an intellectual. So uh, I think that gives you good precedence to tune out as well. Um, Also, when you know somebody's politics, you tend to look at them differently. You tend to receive their work differently. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's a very real effect. So if you would like me to continue being just a blank slate and just simply a creator and not somebody who, uh, you know, informs other people of their politics and their viewpoints, and you just want to experience Knights of the Slice and Toy Pizza as a separate standalone entity without any trappings of, uh, of these things. I-, I don't blame you, and, you know, don't proceed any further. And I-, I do think you can still consume and be that good little consumer, keep tossing over those coins into the piggy bank without, uh, you know, having to wade through any of this necessary muck. So uh, that's your final warning. You can uh, wait for a future Dostazipod that will just talk about plastic things, and I won't even mention the environmental impact of making these tiny collectibles. And uh, it'll be good. But also, you know, at the end of the day, this is Dostazipod. This is not Toy Pizza. This is not necessarily Knights of the Slice. So it would be a little disingenuous to not speak my mind on things uh, because my name is in the title. So I got to be truthful here. So uh, that's the that's the warning. That's the preamble. Tune out now. But if you feel like, hey, I want to know a little bit more about what makes this guy tick, you can proceed further. So why am I doing this now? Um, There's a very specific reason. Uh, As we sort of get into an election year, I have felt my anxiety uh, becoming more and more acute because I do think we're we're on the precipice of likely utter destruction and possibly some actual progress in humanity. And there are 
there have been a couple inciting incidents that have really made me feel compelled to speak on these things. And I guess the most recent one was a little incident, which was very minor, but it's what I've deemed Scalpergate. And Scalpergate was a sort of commiserating or, or public bemoaning of people not liking other people reselling uh, Glios items and a call for ethics in the this specific collectibles subgenre. And I was really bothered by this for very deep psychological undercurrent reasons that were not apparent to me, and it took me quite a while of examination to, to kind of figure out what was so starkly bothersome about that. And it really comes down to, to two things. One is that what people were actually complaining about was not somebody else reselling something and making a profit. I believe it was actually that they can't afford to do the same thing. I think that people struggle to be able to afford these little luxuries. And because, you know, our particular hobby is one of high demand, low supply, they cannot necessarily compete in the secondary market. And that rightfully creates a lot of frustration for them. Now, their complaints targeting a specific reseller, I think, are misplaced in, you know, of a of sort of anxiety that they have that something that, you know, is about 10 to $20 on average is an exorbitant purchase for them. And something that if they miss in the initial sales window, they have no recourse to obtain these things. Now... I'm projecting onto that. It's probably different for a lot of people that may have negative connotations towards resellers or flippers or things like that. But that's the lens under which I'm viewing this for. I think that actually the the animus behind Scalpergate was more about I'm broke. We're broke collectively. Like wages are stagnant. People do not have the same level of open to buy money, purchasing power, if you will, that they did 10 years ago or, or even further back. You know, the the marginal propensity to consume, MPC, this, this is a, a great concept to think about. The MPC is a, a sort of thought experiment. If you give somebody $1, does that dollar get spent or does that dollar go into savings? And there's a very different pattern of life for people on one side of the MPC to people on the other side of MPC. Me, personally, you give me $1, that's going to go into savings. I don't have an immediate need for a single dollar. For the majority of Americans, they are on the other side of the MPC. If they get a dollar, they have to spend that dollar. They got to spend it on gas. They got to spend it on you know, utilities, they got to spend it on food. We have really, uh, you know, we're hitting a boiling point in terms of people not having enough money 
to sort of cover their basic needs. And, and I think there's probably no more stark indicator of this than the minimum wage, which is largely around $7 for the majority of the company, which is what it was at when I was in the restaurant industry, which by the way, servers and bartenders get way less than $7. I think it's it was about 2 to $3 with the idea that being that you're being tipped which puts you over $7, but you have to claim those tips. You get taxed on them X, Y, and Z. Anyway, another story for another time. So the one segment of Scalpergate that bothered me was, I think that actually it's about people not having money and having, you know, just our economy doing a really poor job of... Letting people not only meet their basic needs, but then also have a little bit of money to put back into the marketplace. You know, people being able to buy stuff and being able to buy luxury goods, being able to get into their hobbies, that helps everybody. That That is, you know, that is what we want to have happen, assuming we want the same system to continue on. You want people to be able to afford things. It's good for everybody. Um, so that's the one portion of this that struck me. It was that this is more an indicator of people's economic well-being in the current system. The second part of Scalpergate that, that sort of struck me is the call for ethics. Uh, that there is a code, there's a social contract we should all aspire to as Glios community members, and we should never cross that line, and we should all do the right thing, and if we buy any surplus, it goes directly at the same value and the same cost to an unfortunate community member who could not get one. This strikes me as so crazy to enforce a code of ethics in a completely unethical society, country, superstructure, etc., etc. Um, you know, I, I waver all the time in, in, you know, my my sort of view of capitalism as a whole. I think there are some very, very compelling arguments out there, uh, and I encourage a heavy dose of skepticism for that system. Because I think it's made me smarter and better. And, but the one thing I, I definitely feel and know in my bones is that applying ethics to this tiny little microcosm within a capitalist stru- structure is complete fallacy. You know, there's nothing ethical about the production of these goods. There's nothing ex- ethical about, you know, this world we find ourselves in. So... This is such a misdirected uh, call to action. It's it's really, it's so far off base, it's preposterous to me. You know, we can have a call for ethics when it comes to things like universal health care or redirecting our tax dollar money from the military-industrial complex to things that mitigate suffering for people in their material reality. Um, 
those are ethical actions to be taken. This this call for, you know, ethics in reselling an item that you purchased in a in the system that we have, um, it, it's it's silly to me. It, it it shows a complete lack of understanding of the world we find ourselves in, and again, is a very misdirected thing. They're just like people not having enough money to afford these completely extraneous goods, but taking it out on you know resellers in that marketplace. This, too, is a sort of misdirection. Yes, there should be ethics. We should adhere to an ethical code. It should be applied to the greater world. It should not be applied to this tiny little corner of a marketplace. Because it's completely pointless. It's, it's sort of virtual signaling in this, this little tiny, you know, this pocket of a amoral sort of system. So those are the two sort of heavy psychological things that, that I perceive to be going on with Scalpergate. And in processing all this, I was like, I, I have to speak to this. I, I can't just sit with these ideas myself. My girlfriend doesn't want to hear this shit, right? Uh, I, I have... Uh, some great friends around me, but when I'm with them, I don't want to spend time sort of on a soapbox, going on a tirade, parroting back interesting political things I've heard. Uh, I want to spend time, you know, just being a human being and <laughs> and and not sort of, uh, you know, waving my fist at these things. So that means I got to unload and dump on you guys, you lucky, lucky people. This past year, I sat down with my grandmother. She's, uh, I don't know her age. She's uh, mid-80s, probably, might, might even be late-80s. Uh, child of the Depression. Um, completely apolitical. I don't think she's ever voted in an election. Um, there are sort of religious prohibiting things that, you know, have prevented anyone in her side of the family from ever sort of participating in these things. Uh, and we sat down, and as often happens, we get a couple drinks into the evening, and she said to me, I, apropos of not much, she said, communism is the only fair system of government. Now, this is a woman that believes in her soul that uh, essentially the rapture will happen, and God will rule on earth. And that, you know, there is a Armageddon pending and that only righteous people will sort of exist and survive. And, you know, a pretty prototypical uh, kind of vision of why you should be checked out of society in this world because there is a greater reward in the afterlife. And that was her, a you know, a summary of her political viewpoint that communism is the only fair system of government. And uh, she went on to say that she was actually kicked out of her house uh, when she was 17 for holding that viewpoint. 
And she's never wavered in this feeling, in this viewpoint. And you have to understand this is, you know, this would have been pre-Cold War. So this is pre-McCarthyism, pre, you know, the, the lockdown that the 80s had on communism and anything remotely favorable towards the USSR and, and things like that. All of that w was completely taboo. You couldn't talk about it. It wasn't taught in school. The only thing I ever learned about the USSR was that they were uh, inherently evil and um, that they were, you know, the bad guys in Rambo 3. And that was the, the total sum that I was taught about, uh, you know, anything relating to communism or things like that. Uh, so I found that to be pretty staggering because, uh, that is a, a really, a viewpoint that just really has been stamped out in a lot of ways. By the way, not my viewpoint. Uh, I am very open to people sort of convincing me of different systems of government that we need to have. My personal viewpoint is we're never going to have a single ism in the government. I think we're always going to be a hybrid because we are a hybrid society. And the one thing that America does really well is we synthesize previous cultures and sort of empires and city-states and countries. We take what works for them, with the exception of healthcare, and we kind of make it our own thing. So I don't believe talking about communism or talking about socialism or talking about capitalism is anything to be afraid of because we're never going to have a single-ism. We are, even when we're a wasteland, we will be a mixture of all sorts of things. I have uh, spent time in a communist country. I've been to China several times. I've been there um, more than 10 years ago during the Bush years, the George W. Bush years, and uh, have gone recently. And it has developed incredibly quick. Uh, the places I used to go at the turn of the century, um, they're all built up now. A lot of shopping malls, a lot of things like that. They've really, they've slid hard into the consumerism aspect of a uh, more open market than they had when I used to go there, which is not an endorsement of free open markets, and it's not an endorsement of communism either, just to clarify. But what I asked um, the people there uh, during my last trip was, what is it like having just a one party system? What is it like being in a quote-unquote communist country? What, you know? And uh, the replies I got were usually along the lines of, my parents were starving to death, and I have plenty of food, so I don't care what the government does. And, it, you know, obviously didn't speak to a large sampling. I can't say that this is every Chinese citizen's feeling, but generally... As long as their basic needs are met, uh, they tend to be apolitical. Um, you know, the larger implications of having a sort of monolith as a government uh, are largely lost on them because 
their material reality is one of, let's say, abundance or at least satisfaction. And, uh, you know, that phrase material reality, I, I go back to a lot because I think it's, it's a really important device to kind of snap into focus what's important and what's not important in life. Material reality is your basic needs, you know, food, shelter, healthcare, etc. Um, I think that Trump was successful in his ability to articulate the suffering in people's material reality. Whether or not he was genuine about wanting to fix those things or had any idea, he was very sort of skilled and crafty at calling out the things that affect people's material reality. And I think that largely the political system has been focused on anything but that. You know, maybe small incremental change to people's material reality that, uh, you know, have some, some good effects long term, but we still largely ignore the day-to-day suffering. Um, I think if I had to distill my political views into a sort of single sentence or a small blurb or paragraph, I am largely focused, I am solely focused on easing suffering. And if that means that we need government to ease suffering, then reluctantly I am okay with that. If it means that, you know, personal action can ease suffering, then that's the way to go. If it means private business can ease suffering, however skeptical I am of that, then so be it. Um, I am I am sort of only focused on what are the major changes we can make that will ease suffering. And obviously, the biggest one is healthcare. I would say I'm almost a single issue voter at this point because we can save millions of lives with Medicare for All. And I understand that the automatic sort of defense or takedown of, of being for Medicare for All is the cost, how do we afford it, X, Y, and Z. I don't buy into that. I, I reject the premise of that question because what people need to understand is that the money that is collected in taxes is our money. We can apply it wherever we want. There's no question there's going to be a cost associated with Medicare for All, but we, the people, get to direct where our money is pooled and what it gets applied to. And for me, we have to absolutely catch up with all the other nations that have, you know, that basically can take care of their citizens. Um, One of the benefits of, you know, being able to travel to exotic places for work um, is to talk to other people that live in these different societies. And uh, we continue to be a laughingstock when it comes to healthcare. This was actually something I talked quite a bit about during my Asia trips uh, last year, whether it was in Japan or in a communist country like China or in a, you know, heavily capitalist-focused place like Hong Kong. Uh, Again and again and again, the people I talked to could not believe 
what our healthcare situation was, and did not appreciate the gravity of how it works. There's even disinformation, as, as negatively as they see the American healthcare system as. There is a ton of misinformation out there. They, they don't even grasp that, like, that you have to pay for an ambulance. They understand that, you know, it's expensive and people have to pay out of pocket and people go bankrupt and people skip insulin. But on the granular level, they don't even understand something as simple as taking an ambulance can cost $2,500 to, you know, to $10,000, whatever the price may be. It's, it's pretty stark, you know, they, they understand this is an evil, corrupt, backward system, but even they, without understanding, do not understand how much the boot is on all of our necks for these things. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the material reality for places like Japan and China and Hong Kong, you know, they're, their health is not a concern in the way that it is here. They never speak to an insurance company. How many of you guys have been on the phone arguing with an insurance company about something they wouldn't cover or trying to get a price ahead of time for a procedure or an appointment or calling around to doctors trying to find somebody who takes your insurance? You know, those things never happen in these other countries. And I'm not sort of giving them all a pardon or saying that they are a utopian society, but I would say that this one factor is not part of the material reality for people. Their, their needs are being met. A few years back, I had a girlfriend from Sweden. She was over in the United States on a sort of work school program. She was a librarian, which is a very decent, very sought after job in Sweden because you have uh, all the benefits of a sort of steady gig. And again, you know, Swedes are not concerned with uh, being able to seek out treatment for any ailments, go to the doctor, things like that. Swedes also, and I'm paraphrasing this a bit, so I'm sure there's going to be some inaccuracies, but they also have a much different housing market. Uh, you essentially enter a lottery and you are assigned uh, apartments and houses. And you can, of course, rent privately and do things like that. But they generally uh, try to set up their citizens with housing. And while these are not luxurious mini mansions in you know, on acres of swap land in Florida, these are decent, pretty nice, livable condos and, and other situations. Um, so pretty early into our relationship, uh, we got on the topic of politics. Um, and I don't know what prompted it, but she, her eyes lit up and she said, I'm a socialist. And I said, in a reflex fashion, it's like, that's what Nazis are, right? And she became understandably very upset. I'd actually never met anybody who proclaimed to be a socialist. And at that point, my understanding of what that is was a product of the American education system growing up in the 80s, which is to say 
We never discuss communism. We never discuss socialism other than to say they are evil and a sort of holdover from McCarthyism and the Cold War. So I literally had no frame of reference or context for what she was professing to be other than that Hitler professed to be that, uh, you know, when he had his rise in Germany. And I wish I, I could have listened and unpacked what that was because it would have saved me a lot of time in learning this later in life. But she basically said that the difference was between, you know, America and professing to be a capitalist society, which I'm going to speak on that later. Spoiler, it's not. Uh, and a place like Sweden was that bankers go to jail in Sweden. And what she was illustrating was that you know, the citizens were not beholden to the market. It was the other way around. If bankers did something illegal or created a financial collapse, they went to jail. They were held accountable. And for her, that was the starkest difference between her society and our society. And she had me beat on that point because this was uh, probably close to 10 years ago. And this was during the Obama administration. And, you know, one of the things that was sort of going around and gaining momentum, I think this was probably probably around the Occupy Wall Street movement, if not right before. But one of the things that was sort of being discussed was that, hey, you know, that whole financial collapse and the whole bailout and everything else. Uh, what's the body count here? Who's been sort of you know, strung up for this. And resoundingly, we were starting to realize nobody, nobody was taken into account. I think one person went to jail and they were uh, an informant or a whistleblower, if I'm not mistaken. You can watch The Big Short, which really sum summarizes that disgraceful period pretty well. But I was uh, so under-equipped to have this conversation and so, you know, not prepared by our education system or by just anybody, you know, whether it's the media or the things I was exposed to, I literally had no concept. And I was in my, geez, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. That's pretty embarrassing. But I think that that's emblematic of the system we find ourselves in. We're, we're sort of undereducated and we're over-propagandized to how wonderful this uh, winning system is that we've built for ourselves. And uh, I got to tell you, the mask is off now. You, you really have to look at these things in a critical fashion. So what kind of system are we in? if we're not a capitalist society. I think that the argument can be made that we are an oligarchical society, if not one that is sliding headfirst into it. And I will demonstrate why that is through a couple reasons, uh, or events rather. One, obviously the financial crash and the government bailout of all these different businesses and the failing to jail any perpetrators of these crimes. In a... Capitalist society, there are still 
rules and regulations and uh, you know, there's a price to be paid for breaking the law. There is still a rule of law in a capitalist society. I, you can argue how much the rule of law actually applies to those who don't have capital in a capitalist society. I think that's a very fair argument to make. But let's assume on paper in a capitalist society there is still still the rule of law and every citizen is treated equally. Um, the financial crash and the, the using of taxpayer dollars to bail out these corporations is a function of socialism that is not a capitalist function. Now, you can also argue whether or not that was necessary if Obama made the right moves, if we prevented a bigger worldwide meltdown. You know, I I don't know. I can't say. But I can say that the the utilization of taxpayer, taxpayer dollars for that lifeline um, is not a capitalist function. Okay, so that is something that very much comes from, I would say, misusing socialism, or even something that would come in an oligarchical society. Our legal classification, I believe, shifted from being a capitalist society to being an oligarchy, happened profoundly with Citizens United. Now, Citizens United was the Supreme Court case where basically, as Mitt Romney said, corporations are people and that unlimited campaign financial donations should be allowed because that equals free speech. This is so profoundly wrong. Uh, I can't even begin to pick it apart, but my assumption is that you guys probably agree and most Americans probably agree This is not the right move. On a very basic level, as was just called out by Andrew Yang in a debate, the majority of people can't afford political contributions. They don't have spare money to do it. So if we're equating free speech with political contributions, and megacorporations are now classified as people in that regard, we are essentially taking the majority of the population and saying you don't have free speech. I think that that's the metric in which we're measuring these things. So I think that was another huge event that really sh- turned the key and the engine is it is roaring on us, us being an oligarchy. Um, it's only gotten worse from there. And I think that if you look at what is happening now with the Sackler family, and Purdue, the Purdue Pharma Company, the the architects of the opioid crisis. This single family, incredibly rich, billionaires if not trillionaires, probably billionaires. Um, they are in the crosshairs of our legal system, thankfully, about ten years too late, I would say. And by all accounts. The the states that are successfully suing the Sackler family for the opioid crisis, they're basically being made to cut checks for a couple billion dollars that will probably get relitigated down to a couple million dollars, which is a drop in a bucket to a family with this much personal wealth. These people are not going to jail. They're not going to get executed. And they have blood on their hands. And you can see it now. They're already maneuvering to file bankruptcy, to, uh, you know, move their money around. They've hired all kinds of PR firms. 
This is how an oligarch society functions, where the super rich family who have literally killed people will be completely absolved of their sins for simply adding a couple zeros to a check. Now, when I say, like, this podcast is non-controversial, I think that this is a pretty non-controversial statement. I, I believe that the majority of you folks and the people in this country do not think that a company or a family that has perpetrated such a heinous crime with such a huge body count should be able to just cut a check and go about their business. And those three events, I think, fully illustrate why I would classify our society as not even a capitalist one, but as one that is that is solely two-tiered. I wouldn't say solely two-tiered. That doesn't make sense. That is two-tiered. Uh, where if you're a family with the means of the Sacklers, you're going to get a very different treatment than you are if, you know, you're just a, a regular person who uh, can't afford to buy a night of the slice on the secondary market. I think a fair criticism is that government does not do a lot of things really well, and bigger government does not equal better results. I, I, there's no question there. I, I I actually agree with that. I know it's kind of a libertarian mindset, but the premise is correct. A bigger government filled with the same kind of politicians is not going to enact change. We, that's been demonstrated over and over again. A stripped bare government with the same kind of politicians is not going to enact change. We've seen that, you know, look at like the IRS, that's been stripped bare. The State Department, that's been stripped bare. We're still having running into the same problems because the quality of politician hasn't changed. And by quality of politician, I simply mean only taking, you know, personal uh, contributions to campaigns, not taking corporate money. If we can elect officials that only take our money, and that are not spending their time in Congress calling all their donors and soliciting more donations and doing, you know, fundraisers and dinners and shit like that, if we can have a better quality of politician, then there is a better chance that our will will be carried out because they're theoretically going to answer to us. So if we're broke, if we are looking and calling for ethics in places where ethics cannot exist because we are not ethical in our society or treatment of other citizens, if we profoundly misunderstand socialism, if we are completely forbidden from discussing communism and we live in an oligarchy, what do we do? And I've struggled with this for the past couple of years. Look, I was not political before this last election. I will be the first to admit that. I I was a registered independent for the majority of my life. In New York State, you have to be registered for a party in order to vote for primaries. So I was coerced into registering as a Democrat. 
um, so I could participate in the primaries. Uh, what is somebody to do? Um, what I have found out over the past three or four years in all my pretty uh, vapid consumption of easily digestible entertainment uh, and sort of political podcasts and shit like that, what is my dime store education brought forth as the basic truths of action we can take to make things better, to mitigate suffering, to end suffering if possible. I think it comes down to, to two universal things. I think the first one is do not back or vote for politicians that take super PAC money or corporate donations. Now, there are not a lot of politicians that don't do that, but the number is growing, and we now know it is a feasible thing. You can look at some of the uh, thought leaders in the space on, um, you know, grassroots fundraising. The numbers are there. People are making it happen, and they have a huge groundswell of interest. Whether you like them or not, it doesn't matter. This is about policy, not about the people necessarily. So the first thing to do is to understand where money is coming from with the politicians that are in the field and making your vote be focused on those that are not accepting corporate money. The only people that are going to change campaign finance and contributions and overturn Citizens United and impose term limits and shit like that are going to be people that are not suckling on the teat of you know, these financial contributions. So that's absolutely step number one, a line in the sand. You have to, your voting has to be in line with politicians that uh, sort of take that pledge. The second thing to do is to focus on material reality. Focus on what are the steps we can take to ease suffering, to protect people, to be empathetic, and to essentially treat people as we'd like to be treated. And that may sound idealistic, but don't be cynical about it. There are very real things within our grasp that we can get that will make a huge difference to people's lives. Now, I'm approaching this out of my own self-interest. The livelihoods of both my parents are going to depend largely on if we get Medicare for all. Their ability to live not even a decent life, but just to have very basic needs covered Things like palliative care, which we don't talk much about, or, um, you know, their, the twilight of their years is going to depend on whether or not Medicare for All happens. It goes even more immediate than that. Uh, there are siblings of mine that are going to depend largely on if Medicare for All gets passed. And I may be okay. I might survive based on the business I've built and, you know, what meager money I have in savings and the fact I don't have kids and, you know, uh, have somewhat small debt, still have student loan debt, but not much. 
Um, I'm going to survive. The rest of my family, I don't know what the outlook is for them. And a lot of my customers, I don't know what the prognosis is for them as well without Medicare for all. The sheer amount of GoFundMes that I see all the time and I try to participate in is staggering. The the insulin crisis is just soul crushing and shouldn't happen. And if we can just focus, cut out all the noise, cut out all the pundits, cut out all the catchphrases and the talking points, all that bullshit doesn't matter. It's either of material reality or it's not. And so if we can laser focus on changing people's lives for the better, we need to do that. And it is not cynical to insist on these things. This is our money. We fund the government. We can apply our money wherever we want to. If we don't want to be subsidizing mega corporations, we don't have to do that. So my goal here, if anything else, is to float the the theory that the bigger goals I, I think we're all actually aligned on. And you can have criticism of something like Medicare for All. You can have criticism of discharging student loan debt. You can have criticism of, you know, uh, government work programs, things like that. Th- that's fine, and that's those are important conversations to have. Um, but I think if we can agree that the government is not representative of us and that we want politicians that aren't taking huge corporate donations and that we would like to redirect resources in order to make all of our lives a lot better. I think those are pretty basic premises that, um, you know, there is reachable action on. And now, I would also say that online activism is not the same as activism. And consumerism is not the same as activism. Going to see the female Ghostbusters is not going to make a meaningful change for women in the workplace. I'm sorry, it's not. Um, You know, reposting a Baby Yoda meme is not the same thing as making a donation to a politician that does not take any corporate money. So just try to be... Try to know the difference. You know, try to see between the lines and, and try to just focus on those two things. We need better quality of politicians and we need to end or mitigate suffering where we can. And everything else, it can wait. These are the the most important, crucial steps, and they're within our grasp. Within a year's time, we can have a very different prognosis for the majority of people than we have right now. Uh, So thank you guys for listening to my diatribe and my rant. I I don't know if any of that made sense, but that's sort of what's top of the mind for me and the things I'm struggling with and thinking about. And uh, I don't expect everybody to agree with everything I said, but I hope that at the very least you found this informative. 
I, I do want to make one recommendation. Uh, I sort of have struggled for a very long time to find uh, a sort of source of news or information that I, I wouldn't say aligns with myself, but is at least critical of the power structures that be. And I wanted to highlight uh, David Pakman because I think he's done a really great job of putting together news and commentary that go beyond the corporate news structure. Now, David is a, a pretty left guy, and he does descend into hyperbole when he's talking about Republican figures and, and things like that. Um, but I find him to be, out of all the news sources out there, I find him to at least be honest about his biases and where he's coming from and to provide takes and further reading and further information that I found very helpful over the past uh, three or four years. And I, I think you guys might enjoy it as well, even if you don't agree with everything he says, which I don't agree with everything he says. Um, so maybe that's that might be a little helpful for you. And there's always great further reading that he suggests to kind of get more nuance about a lot of these bigger ideas. Um, so... Hopefully you've enjoyed this uh, thought exercise. Let's keep focused on the material reality of people and let's strive for a better quality of politician. And the only thing left to say is pizza out.